Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Jonah chapter 4. And if you don't, that's all right. You can look along with us on the screens this morning. Jonah chapter 4. Well, Jonah only has four chapters, so you know what that means. Today's the last week of this series, and so we're going to cover uh, the end of this great story, this mini-episode uh, series, if you will, in the Bible, tucked there in the Old Testament, in the Minor Prophets, the story, the great story of Jonah. So we have been in this for four weeks. This is our fifth and final Sunday, so I'm excited to wrap up the story with you today. Jonah chapter 4. Well, before we get into that, let me pray for us and ask the Lord to bless his word. Jesus, again, we are so thankful that we get to celebrate your goodness today, God. We thank you for Tina and uh, just leading her to this church, Lord, and expressing her faith and the ordinance of baptism today, God. And, and we just thank you for, for what uh, salvation is, Jesus, that we have been redeemed. You have purchased us with your blood. And so we are so thankful that we have you Lord, I pray that our greatest desire as we wrap up this story in Jonah would just simply be you. Not something you give us, not something we may get from coming to church, but just you. Lord, may we cherish you. Show us how that truly transforms our lives today. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Every story that you hear about, every novel that you read, every movie that you watch, almost every story without probably few exceptions to the rule ends very nicely and neatly with everyone living happily ever after. Now, I know that's not always the case, but nine times out of ten, whatever story you read or watch or listen to, it's going to have some kind of nice, neat, organized ending. Well, that is not the case for Jonah. As we're going to see today, the book, the story of Jonah ends abruptly. It ends in a way that you would not expect. In fact, it even ends with a question, which is highly unusual. Well, I want us to pick up today. We're actually going to start in the last verse of chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 10. So I want us to see and pick up with this story exactly where we left off. Remember, God called Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. Well, at first, he didn't want to do that. In fact, he tried to flee away from the presence of God, away from this mission, and he got on a boat heading to a place called Tarshish, which most people think is in Spain, which at the time would have been the end of the world, so to speak, the farthest place anyone had ever gone. And so he's in the Mediterranean Sea running away from God, but God gets his attention. God sends a storm, and the sailors end up throwing Jonah overboard, because Jonah tells them that that's the only way the storm will stop. And the storm does stop. He was right. And what looks like the end of Jonah's life, the lowest point, God saves Jonah. He rescues him in the most unlikely of means. He sends a great fish or a whale to actually swallow him. And Jonah survives by the grace and miraculous power of God. He survives in the belly of that great aquatic beast for three days and three nights. And he ends up being vomited out on shore. Then God speaks to Jonah again, and what does he say? The same thing he said the first time. Go to Nineveh. Preach to these people. Share this message that I have for them. You are my prophet. You work for me. This is your job. Now go. Jonah goes, but as we're going to see today, and he makes very evident, he went very reluctantly. 
But what happened when he went? He preached to the Ninevites, and guess what? They responded. They heard the message of God, and they responded in repentance. That means they turned away from their sin and their evil ways. And now, these people, with no clear spiritual direction, just knowing that their evil is wrong, knowing that they need help and they need grace, Surely Jonah, after preaching this successful sermon, this successful message to them and seeing such great response, surely he's going to stick around and tell them and help them and encourage them, right? Well, here's what happened. Jonah 3.10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Now, that could be the end of the story, Right? I mean, this is a great thing. God was going to send judgment on Nineveh, the people of that great city, for their sin. He was going to punish them, and rightfully so. They were very evil, very wicked people. They did terrible things to others. God was going to send judgment on them. And Jonah preaches, and they turn away from their evil way. This is great. So that could be the end of the story, and Jonah goes home as some kind of hero, some kind of celebrity pastor who had this great success. Not quite. There's another chapter to this story. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What? Why? That's his job, right? I mean, this is his job. This doesn't make any sense. This would, this would be like Billy Graham being just angry that so many people came forward and got saved at a crusade back in the day. This would be like you working at your, your business or your company and your, your boss gives you some kind of project and you just knock it out of the park. You do an awesome job and the whole company is more successful and more profitable because of your work, but you just sit in the corner and pout and act like, yeah, this is terrible. Nobody would do that. So why is Jonah working for the Lord as a prophet, a speaker of God, why is he so angry and upset? Verse two, he tells us. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Okay, God is gracious and that bothers you, Jonah? God is compassionate, he's abounding in steadfast love, he's patient with people? I mean, he's talking about these things as if they're bad things. But he thinks this is bad because they're directed at people who he doesn't like. People who, people he doesn't want to see succeed or flourish. Because if those people are flourishing, that means that he and his people are not. Or at least it means Jonah and his people won't be superior to them. So Jonah is so angry at God about this. Notice his anger is directed at the Lord, right? So upset that all of this is not turning out the way that he wanted it to go so that his people can remain superior to those people that he has pushed to really an unbelievable amount of despair. This matters so much to him. Look at this, verse three. Therefore now, Jonah continues talking to God, oh Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Now we may think that's extreme, but think about it. Everything Jonah has ever thought was worth living for has been taken from him. 
Think about his reputation. I mean, his own people may see him as a traitor now because he went and saved their enemy, their geopolitical enemy. The Assyrians and the Israelites did not get along. They were enemies. And so if Jonah, the Israelite, comes back on the, from this mission trip and says, hey, good news, everybody. Uh, you know the Assyrians, the people we don't like? Well, they're flourishing and they love the Lord now. The Israelites may say, what? You traitor? How have you done this? So Jonah wants to protect his reputation. He'd rather die than face that. He wants to protect his comfort. All of this is putting him in an awkward position to return home where he was once successful. He wants to protect his superiority. He may think he needs to quit his job as a prophet for failing in this way in his mind. You see, everything he had really been living for up until this point in his life is being stripped away from him and it is pushing him to the point of despair where he can't handle it. Verse four, what does God have to say? And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? In other words, is it appropriate for you to be so upset about this, Jonah? Notice Jonah doesn't respond to the question. Instead, verse five, what does he do? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So he's thinking, okay, the warning was from God, hey, Nineveh, you have 40 days to repent before God punishes you. So Jonah in his mind is thinking, I don't know what day this is, but maybe it's before the end of the 40 days. Maybe he's sitting there thinking, you know, hey, there's still time. Maybe they'll mess this up. Maybe God will still punish them. Maybe he'll do what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, right? Maybe that's what's gonna happen. Jonah's waiting to see. But remember, I love that it says, verse five, he went out of the city. So this initial prayer he's having with God must have been in the city. So Jonah was there when he saw these people turning to God. The people who he truly despised in his own heart, but he reluctantly preached to, and they responded to that, he was in the city watching them turn from their evil ways. He probably saw husbands turn from their sin. He saw wives and mothers turn from their sin. He saw teenagers turn from their evil ways. He saw soldiers turn from their evil ways. He saw rulers turn from their evil ways, and he couldn't handle it. He couldn't stand seeing them flourish in this way he had always felt superior to them and he didn't want them to succeed. It's quite interesting. He can't stand to see the beginning of what may be the end of his superiority. So boiling over with anger, what does he do? He doesn't even want to be a part of it. He doesn't want to continue to live amongst those people and help them see the goodness of God, how they can walk with the Lord in their daily life. He just leaves them. He leaves the city and decides to sit and watch, hoping maybe something will change and God will still destroy them. Verse six, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head. It was brutally hot to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. God again shows patience and love to Jonah here. And again, Jonah welcomes these characteristics of God as long as they're directed at him. His comfort, the shade of the plant is what makes him happy in this moment. It's what he cares more about instead of the salvation and the flourishing of these people. 
Verse 7, but what is God doing here? He's teaching Jonah something. Look at this. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Now you may feel that way here in Northeast Florida when we're mowing your grass, you know what I mean? And it's 104 degrees outside, the sweat's pouring, I know the feeling. But Jonah is genuinely at his wit's end. He is at the point of utter despair according to his calculation of how everything's going. God is working once again in the wayward heart of his prophet. Note that it says God appointed. Three different times it says God appointed in verses 6 through 8. God is the one still near and dear to his wayward son. He is the one teaching Jonah a lesson that he desperately needs to learn. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This is just childish, right? I mean, this is like, you know, me telling my five-year-old he can't have something and him going to his room and just pouting about it. That's exactly what Jonah's doing, right? You parents, you know what I'm talking about. When your kid doesn't get their way, they just go wherever and they pout. This is pouting. Jonah is no better than a four- or five-year-old person, child, who is just so upset that things aren't going their way. He is just going to throw himself a little pity party. But God will have the final word, and he's about to cut right to the middle of Jonah's heart. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's how the story ends. In other words, Jonah... You care, you care more about your temporary comfort. You you care more about feeling superior to these people. You care more about your reputation. You care just about yourself. You don't care about these people who without me, Jonah, God says, will perish and live eternally separated from me forever in torment and punishment and judgment for their sin. God says these people don't know their right hand from their left. In other words, they have no spiritual direction. They need spiritual truth, Jonah. Jonah, they need you to show them compassion, not anger and hatred. These people are hungry and they're thirsty for truth. They're thirsty for someone to love them and show them the ways of God and you are refusing to do that because you have other preoccupations. God's saying, Jonah, I'm compassionate toward these people and you say you work for me, you say you belong to me. Why aren't you reflecting that compassion? 
Why don't you care? So the story ends abruptly, but it ends with a question. And I think that is very intentional because I think the question is left for the reader to answer. The question is for us. Are we going to care? You know, we have to ask this question, why do we lack compassion for others who are not like us? Why do we lack compassion for our enemies? Why do we lack compassion for those in this world whom on a normal day-to-day basis we would want nothing to do with? We may even sometimes go out of our way to avoid them. Why do we not care enough about people's souls to be a faithful witness when they need it most? I think there's one big roadblock in the problem, and you see that in Jonah's heart. You see it in ourselves. Jonah is committed to his own superiority. And I think that we are as well. I want us to see a few things today. First of all, we need to talk about our pursuit of our own superiority. Our need to feel better than other people. Let's talk about that. First of all, we see here in Jonah's heart, our pursuit of superiority seeks to elevate ourselves above God. And that's the real issue. You see, Jonah thought he knew better than God. He he disagrees with God. He he disagrees fundamentally with the way God is showing grace to these people. Essentially, Jonah wants to, to, you know, God, I like you, God, but if you could just kind of be my co-pilot through life and let me just really call the shots, Jonah seeks to not rid God from his life. Jonah doesn't want to be an atheist. Oh, sure, he wants God in his life, but he wants to call the shots. Jonah wants to assert himself, elevate himself above God just enough so that he can still lean on God if he needs to, but ultimately he's the one driving the ship. He wants to be the ultimate judge over himself and others. You see, but that's not just a Jonah problem. That's a human problem. This is the fundamental problem for all of humanity. I would argue with you that it's the reason the world is so dysfunctional. Because we're all trying to take the place of God. We're all trying to assert ourselves just enough above him so that, oh, he's still there, but he's really following me. We're trying to create him in our image, so to speak. Here's why. Here's why this is a fundamental human problem. Genesis chapter 3, look at this. See, in the Garden of Eden, at the beginning of time when God created the first humans, he gave them a perfect world to live in. I mean, he set the stage for them to thrive. And what did they want? Well, the serpent said to the woman, right? He was tempting her to do something God commanded them not to do. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, when you eat of this tree God told them not to eat of, your eyes will be opened. And what does he say? You will be like God. That's it. That's the temptation. That is the sin that threw the rest of the world forever and ever off course. That we have all inherited in our human DNA from our first parents. It has gone through generation, through generation, through all the different civilizations and all the different geopolitical places in the world. All humans want to be like God in this unhealthy way. We want to be God. 
And that leads to complete disaster. It's why nations can't get along. It's why political parties hate each other. It's why you hold grudges against your friends or your family members who somehow wronged you. It's why we can't forgive. It's because at the end of the day, we just want to be a little bit above God. Oh, sure, we will bring him to church and we will bring him to prayer time if we need something. But otherwise, we want to call the shots. And that is exactly the disaster that has been since the beginning of time. The greatest disaster, though, and the consequence of this is that it separates us from God. It separates us from having a relationship with him. You can't try to be God and love and worship him at the same time. It's truly a rebellion. God is our creator. And so what does that make us? It makes us traitors. We are traitors for guilty of treason for worshiping ourselves instead of him. The Bible tells us that the rightful punishment for that The judgment we deserve is our own eternal death. Separation from God forever. So listen clearly. In the end, if someone dies without God, without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and they spend eternity in hell, essentially they are getting exactly what they always wanted. God is giving them what they wanted. Life without him. And that is the judgment. That is the punishment. For their sin. Here's the thing. You see, if you think you know better than someone else, like Jonah did towards God, then you're going to disagree with them about how the world should work. You're going to want to put forth your ideas and think that they're best, and that's what we do with God. That's what Jonah's doing with wanting to withhold compassion from the Ninevites. He thought that he had some kind of plan that would work out better than that because ultimately he's not guarding their hearts, he's guarding his. And his heart is devoted not to God or his world, it's devoted to himself. So that means ultimately our pursuit of superiority, just like Jonah's, leads us away from God further and further. Arguing with him, disagreeing with him about the way the world should work. But it also, number two, seeks to elevate ourselves above others. So the first issue, and the most important, is that our need to feel superior, even more than God, separates us from Him, but ultimately, or secondarily, I should say, it should seeks to elevate ourselves above other people. Notice in verse 2, Jonah talks about God's compassion and love like they're bad things. Remember that? I knew that you were a gracious God. Why would he talk like that irreverently to the Lord? He knows those are good qualities about God, good characteristics, but he just doesn't want the Ninevites to be the recipients of those things. He wants those for himself and his people. Why? Because Jonah, deep down, believes there is something inside of him that is a little more deserving than the Ninevites. But again, it's not just a Jonah problem. It's a human problem. We all have this sinful desire inside of us to elevate ourselves, again, just a little bit above others. Man, we'll, we'll, talk and we'll, we'll talk with this language of compassion. We'll talk with this language of love about how we love people. We want to be perceived as loving. We want people to think we're kind-hearted and generous and forgiving. But at the end of the day, do we not treat them just like we do God? We just assert ourselves a little bit above our friends, our family, our neighbors, 
We assert ourselves a little bit above them. So, hey, we're okay with them being in our life. It's not like we're trying to intentionally ostracize them. But as long as we're superior, they can come along. We strive repeatedly to achieve that feeling, which necessitates putting others down however we can so that we can seem higher or better morally. See, do you not believe that that is the way this world functions? It's so clear. I mean, all you have to do is turn on the news. We don't see unity. We don't see peace. It's constant arguing. It's constant back and forth. Because why? We're all fighting to be in the place of God. And so no wonder it affects our interpersonal relationships. No wonder it affects everything you see around you. You may say, Pastor, look, okay, I get that, but that's not true about me. All right, well, if you're married, (laughs) how good does it make you feel when your spouse is wrong, but you're right? You know what I mean? Now, listen, I'm rarely wrong in my marriage, and you can ask my wife about that after the service. (coughs) Just kidding. Um, So my wife, Christy, and I, we've been, um, we've had, recently we've been watching um, Jeopardy almost every night because we are so cool. And um, (laughs) and, uh, it's, it's become pretty competitive. So, you know, we... Basically, the way we play is, you know, the clue comes up. So the first person to shout out the right answer, if you get it right, that's, that's a point. And it's so real simple, right? Don't really make wagers and things like that, but it's real simple. So, so here's the thing. We're playing Jeopardy, and it's fun, and it's funny. But also, there's a part of me that seriously wants to beat her. You know what I mean? Like, I have to win, okay? I have to remain uh, superior, right? That's my mindset. Right, so where where does that evil, wicked joy inside my heart come from? From that innate desire to be superior. You know, think about your workplace. So your coworkers, you know, you, you may kid around with them, you may work on different projects with them, but don't you kinda wanna be noticed a little more by your superior, by your boss than they are? At the end of the day, don't you want to keep that level of superiority above them and somehow, even if it's just in your own head, even if on paper you're equal? Think about your political group. I mean, politics is so toxic these days. You know, we, we have to, I've heard Tim Keller say this, we, we have to demonize the other side to make ourselves feel ultimately morally superior. We, have, we feel like we have to do that. In our world, we see it amongst racial groups. We see it amongst different social classes. There's no compassion. It's all a fight to see who can be the best. You know, compassion, when we think of showing others compassion, I mean, sure, we may have some compassion. I'm not trying to say that we don't have any compassion. But I think it's like a hot summer day. So plenty of those around here, right? Especially recently, it rains almost every afternoon, and so, but, but the rain comes and goes so quickly that you can look out in a parking lot like the one here at church, and two minutes after a rainstorm comes through, I mean, the sun will just be beaming down, right? Really hot, really humid, and what do you actually see rising from the pavement? You see, you see that um, 
Evaporation, that's what I'm thinking of. That's the word. (laughs) You see evaporation. You you see that mist coming from the the parking lot, and and that's like our compassion. It's not that we don't have any. It's just we may have this compassionate, loving thought for a second. We may understand that there's a great need out there in the world for the gospel and for love and for people to serve one another, but, but it's so fleeting in our own hearts that it doesn't take root. Look at Jonah. Just think about this. You know, another reason we know this is true about ourselves is because of what happens when we don't achieve that feeling of superiority over God or other people. Look at Jonah. I mean, look what this has left him. He is emotionally unstable. He got so upset over losing a shade plant. He got so upset over over losing this temporary comfort on top of his already being angry about his enemies being elevated above him and flourishing. He got so upset about that. He was losing a sense of control. He was losing a sense of superiority in every part of his life that he wanted to just end his life. He didn't want to face those things. You see how deeply rooted our idolatry can become. How deeply rooted our sinful tendencies can really drive our behavior, every part of it. Even to the point of our unstable emotions where we just want to die. Our our pursuit of superiority will lead us in different directions. For some of you, it will lead to anger. For some of you, it will lead to self-pity. For some, to complete despair. But, if you are a child of God, you have truly trusted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior, to be everything you cannot be, to be superior for you, then God, like he did to Jonah, you know what he's going to do in your heart? He's going to keep throwing roadblocks in front of you to wake you up. He's going, to te- he's going to keep teaching you lessons like he did Jonah with that shade plant, bringing it one day and taking it away. God in his sovereign compassion is going to do whatever it takes to shape and mold your heart to release itself from that need to feel superior. He's going to do spiritual heart surgery. You know, that's exactly what God does. When he goes into your heart, God... This is beautiful. God is committed to making you spiritually healthy. Just like a heart surgeon in the middle of surgery would be committed to keeping that patient alive. So that not just so that they can live, but so that they can thrive. That is exactly God's commitment to your life. If you truly walk with Jesus, if you have committed to following him and you've repented of your sin and turned to Christ... God is committed to performing spiritual heart surgery to uproot the anger, to uproot the bitterness, to uproot the unforgiving spirit that is all driven down into your heart by that need to be assertive, to feel yourself above God, to feel and put yourself above others. He's going to drive deep down until he finds what it is that needs to be removed so that you can live and thrive. How gracious of God. How gracious of God that he led Jonah to the point of feeling faint. 
That's what the scripture tells us there in chapter 4, that, that Jonah felt faint. That's grace. It's grace that God would lead you to realize, to realize that you cannot continue down that path, that your idol of superiority or comfort or reputation will always fail you. It will not sustain you. How gracious of God to lead us sometimes to feel faint when it comes to our heart's adoration of those things. God leads his people to realize these things. So as we start to conclude today, let's talk about this. We've seen clearly in the book of Jonah what our pursuit of superiority and our idols and our sin leads to. What about this? What if we rest instead in Christ's superiority? What does that lead to? Number one, it enables us to agree with God and obey his word. Jonah disagreed fundamentally with the way God was handling things because he wanted to be God himself. He wanted to essentially be his own savior. You see, when you turn to Christ and you admit that he is everything you could never be, that he lived the life you should have lived when he walked this earth, that he died in your place, and that was you that should have taken the punishment on the cross instead of him, when you realize and you become so grateful for what he's done for you, that he rose from the grave to give you the Holy Spirit in salvation, to give you that chance of not just living, but thriving in obedience to him, loving him as you were created to do and loving others as you were designed to do. When you realize these things, when you rest, in other words, in his superiority and not your own, it changes the way you live. It enables you to actually agree with God about things. When you see him showing grace and kindness to people that maybe you don't exactly like, when you see him working in the world in a certain way that you can't understand, you may not know the answer. Seldom do we. But you agree. You agree that God is good and that there is nothing he will ever do that is not for his glory and not for his people's good. You can agree with that readily and quickly because you're not living for yourself. You're living for him. It enables you to obey his word. It gives you a hunger and a thirst for righteousness where you look into the scriptures, you look at the word of God and you say, I want more of this, not less. I want to be a follower of Jesus and I want to make a difference in this world, not for my name, not like Jonah so that he could go back to his country and be some kind of superstar, but so that we can go through this world maybe unnoticed, but pointing others not to ourselves, to Jesus. Jonah sat under the shade, pouting about God's decision, pouting about his discomfort. As Warren Wearsby points out, you know, Jonah, Jonah waited outside the city to see if God would kill those he refused to forgive. But Jesus, on a cross outside another city many years later, would ask the Father to forgive those who were killing him. Jonah sat under the shade, pouting about God's decision and his discomfort. Jesus hung under the dark sky, willingly and voluntarily suffering for us, submitting to God's plan to save the world through him. It's only when we turn to Christ and see what he did for us that he is the greater Jonah, as he said he was. 
It's only when we turn to his example and we start to appreciate and accept and embrace his love and compassion for us, it's only when we do that that our hearts are actually able to love him and put him in the proper place above us. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still his enemy, Christ died for you. He died the death that we should have died. That is true compassion. Maybe somebody would die for a good person. But who would die for their enemy? Who would die for someone who hated them? The answer, the only answer is Jesus. Because that's exactly what he did for you. We must embrace that. We must accept it. We must cherish it. That compassion of God before we can ever show it to others. It's only when we turn to Christ that our eyes are opened to the reality that you can begin to agree with God about how he designed the world to function. And you can, believe, you can begin to live and operate in the rightful place underneath him, submitting to him. Number two, resting in Christ's superiority also enables us to reflect God's compassion for the lost. You know, over time, the more we assert ourselves above others, the more we try to elevate our superiority by pushing others down, we will care less and less about people coming to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We just won't care. We may come to church. We may know all the right words and all the right facts. Jonah knew the right words. He knew the right facts, but his heart wasn't there. So when it comes down to it, we probably just don't care enough to actually do something to engage our neighbors who don't know Christ, our family members who have resisted the Lord for years. We just don't feel like we can do anything. And I understand it's tough. It's not easy to engage conversation and really show someone love and, and sacrifice your own time and your energy and your needs and your wants and your desires to really put yourself in their lives in hopes of leading them to the Lord. That's not easy. It is hard work. It was hard work for Jonah. There was a great risk in going to Nineveh. Like Jonah, though, we may end up hating some people if we hold such harsh, harsh grudges against them that it turns into hatred. And we definitely don't want to show the love of God to them. We may refuse to forgive them and refuse to offer them the hope of salvation. That's where Jonah's superiority led him to feel that way about other people. But if we rest in the superiority of Christ, we understand our desperate need for grace. It gives us security. It, it reprioritizes our lives and God's mission. We become loving and passionate, compassionate. You see, Christ is infinitely superior to all living things. And the beauty of the gospel is that we are utterly wicked and evil, but Jesus is infinitely superior and gracious for us in our place. His superiority, his righteousness is credited to your account. 
when you admit that you are totally inferior. That sounds backwards to the world's way of living. But the gospel shows us that the way up is down. And that, that is when we can truly start seeing the needs of others. That's what enables us to put our selfish desires and motives aside and to actually start reflecting the compassion of God towards others, especially those that don't know him. The key to reflecting God's compassion for the lost is recognizing our rightful place, not putting ourselves above God, not putting ourselves above others. It's recognizing our rightful place. Our allegiance to our own superiority prevents us from showing others the superiority of Christ, but our allegiance to Jesus and his superiority enables us to reflect that compassion in every single moment of your life if you are listening and if you're following, if you're agreeing with God and you're obeying his word. There's a lost world out there. And what they don't need to see are Christians like Jonah. They don't need to see Christians like Jonah who know the right words and all the right facts, may even speak the right words and obey God out of some sense of obligation. What the world needs is not Christians just going ho-hum through life, occasionally fulfilling religious obligations to satisfy our conscience. What the world needs are Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, who follow his example and lay ourselves down at the feet of Christ and at the feet of others and say, we are here to serve. We are here to love. We are here to show compassion. We are here not to point others to ourselves or to make ourselves look so great or morally superior. No, we are here to just be an arrow, a flashing arrow pointing you to someone greater than Jonah, someone greater than us, to Jesus and Jesus alone. Can we be that? Can we be that representative of Jesus? Can we be, can you be church, that witness for Christ. Only if we rest in his superiority. So I want us to pray about that as we close. I want us to bow our heads and just spend a little bit of time in prayer as we think about what we've learned through this book of Jonah. Maybe some of you are here today and you feel like Jonah on the front end of the story You're still running from God. God has been good to you, but you don't agree with the way he's working things out in your life. And so ultimately, you have found yourself sitting in a church on a Sunday morning, but somehow, deep down in your heart, you're running. You're running. Some of you are here today, and you're like Jonah in the middle part of the story where he reluctantly goes and preaches to Nineveh. And so you're doing religiously obligation, obligational things. But the motivation of your heart is wrong. 
Maybe some of you are like Jonah at the end of the story. Where at the end of this day, it's just, it's your pursuit of your own superiority that is keeping you feeling above God and above others. No matter who you are, where you are in your story in life, would you pray with me now and ask the Lord to cleanse you, to forgive you of this sin, running from him, going through the religious motions, chasing your own superiority, whatever it may be. Would you bow and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we confess these sins. We confess that we pursue our own superiority. We go through the religious motions. Lord, sometimes we try to run away from your calling and mission. So God, we confess these sins. Jesus, we ask that you would cleanse us and forgive us of this unrighteousness in our hearts. And that you would lead us not just to be better people. It's not what we want. Lord, but that you would lead us to be humble and lowly people who are poor in spirit, but blessed by you. That follow your example, Jesus, of giving up the riches of heaven to come to earth to die for your enemies, us. Lord, may we reflect that compassion that you showed us. May that be true and driven so deep into our hearts that it has to come out of our mouths. It has to come out of our hands. Lord, it has to come out of our lives and we show that to the world. Our neighbors, our family, our coworkers, our friends, to love them, to lead them to you. Thank you, Jesus, for leading us to you. May we follow faithfully. It's in your name we pray. Amen.